Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Boyd, and I am the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. We're glad that you've chosen this beautiful uh, March afternoon to be with us after the snow and the clouds and the rain that we've been having. You could have easily been a million other places and just outside in all these parks that we have in Portland, but you've chosen to be here, so thank you for gathering to worship with us tonight. Um, Tonight, we're going to continue looking at the letter of Ephesians. Uh, We've been in a series called United in Christ, and so we've been going through really verse by verse and chapter by chapter into the book of Ephesians, and we are on week three of that. A couple weeks ago, people flooded the city of Portland for what is known as Comic-Con. These events, from what I've told, because I've never gone to one, um, it's, it's where people, the biggest fans and fanatics of different comic books, will go to an event that's all about those, where it's kind of like an expo. People get dressed up as their favorite characters, and I think they call themselves commies. I don't know, because uh, I'm not really involved in that world. But um, one of those genres included in that event is a post-apocalyptic type of comic series. Our culture seems obsessed with these types of movies and these types of shows. Somehow our culture still says, we don't believe in the spiritual realm, we don't believe in demons, we don't believe in the demonic, yet they'll fantasize over these types of shows, which has always been fascinating to me. Those are the most popular movies that come out, those are the most popular TV series that come out, yet people in our culture will say, the spiritual realm, that stuff does not real, and that stuff does not exist. One of those shows, which has been wildly popular over the last few years, is a show called The Walking Dead. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever watched at least one episode of the show The Walking Dead? How many of you watched the series and you've kind of kept up with the show The Walking Dead? Okay, I've got a couple of people, so I'm not alone in that. Historically, I'm not one to watch those types of shows. Um, it's definitely uh, not something I, I normally gravitate towards. It's definitely something my wife doesn't gravitate towards. But somehow the show The Walking Dead captivated my attention a few years ago. I'm not really sure why, other than if you watch the show Lost. I love the show Lost, and The Walking Dead, for whatever reason, it kind of seems similar to the show Lost, except for it just had zombies. And so you kind of enter zombies rather than the island in a group called The Others. Um, also, somehow it seemed better to watch the Walking Dead on Monday nights when someone else in my house is watching The Bachelor. I won't tell you who that is, but I chose The Walking Dead over The Bachelor on Monday nights. And so that's kind of continued, and, and now I'm so intrigued with it that I, every season, like most fans, say, I'm not going to watch that season. You know, it's, I'm done. It's, the storylines are old. And then the new season comes out, and, and I find myself watching it. For those of you not familiar with The Walking Dead, it is an American post-apocalyptic horror television series based on a comic book series. The series features a large ensemble cast as survivors of a zombie apocalypse, and they're trying to stay alive under a near-constant threat of attacks from mindless zombies known as walkers. And so they're trying to stay away from the walkers and be protected from the walkers. The reason I bring this show up is because the set of verses that we look at tonight, the ones that Andrea read for us a few minutes, ago, it describes the state of mankind, the condition that we all find ourselves in prior to Christ, which is a state of death. So in a very real way, we ourselves, we are the walkers. 
We are the ones who are walking around dead. Rather than being fictional zombie characters, we are walking around hopelessly in a state of death. And if the story ended there, that would be a really sad story. In fact, if, if that's why I came to tell you tonight that, hey, we are spiritually dead and we're basically walking zombies, I would think that we should have a, almost like a funeral service and we should all be depressed and we should all go drown in our tears and our sorrow because that is not good news at all. But tonight, we are going to see that one of the most important stories of the Bible is that we actually have a hope, and that hope is that we can be saved. And most of you in the room, many of you in the room, my guess is you're going to say, hey, I'm on the other side of that. I am saved. But we're in a city where we have lots of people, these, these walking dead, so to speak, all around us. So the title of our sermon tonight is Hope for the Walking Dead. Because what we're going to see tonight is that the good news that we celebrate here at Sojourn Weekly, one of the things that makes up our first core value of gospel, the good news, is that there is hope. And that there is hope for mankind. There's hope for the city around us, regardless of the amount of brokenness that we found ourselves in. There is this hope. So tonight we come to a section in the letter of Ephesians that shows that when we were spiritually dead, because that includes all of us, that God made us alive with Christ. Think of it this way. We were present but not voting until God came and gave us life. The set of verses breaks down into two broad sections. The first section is, is verses 1 through 3. And what we're going to see there is we're going to see hopelessness and helplessness without Christ. That's the state where everyone finds himself. In other words, God helps the hopeless, and that includes you. We will see Paul's point throughout this set of verses that salvation is a consequence of God's sovereign initiative. It's not a result of our achievement or merit. If you remember about two weeks ago, we looked at, in chapter 1, it talks about being chosen and being adopted and using these really deep theological terms that people get confused by and people, people fight over these things. But what this is showing us is that it's nothing that you did. So if you're sitting here and you say, I am in Christ, I'm no longer spiritually dead, amen, praise God. But it's nothing that you did to get you in that state. There's nothing that you could have done. There's nothing you did do to get you not being a spiritual zombie. And what we're going to see is that grace is a gift of God. It's not a product of human effort. Section 2, verses 4 through 10, we're going to look at the hope that we have in Christ. In contrast to the hopeless state of the non-believer, Christians exult in a hope because God's incredible grace and free salvation. And so there's something that we can celebrate. There's a hope that we have. And it's the same hope that you and I are able to take out to the world. And we'll see that Paul, he accents his grace in contrast to the pre-Christian hopelessness that we'll analyze in section 1. In Ezekiel 37, 1-3, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answer, O Lord God, you know. So what I want us to do is look with me now in Ephesians chapter 2, where we'll start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some blue Bibles in the back. Um, feel free to grab those. Or if you have it on your phone or your tablet, just, just turn on, swipe up, and find Ephesians 2. And I believe it'll be on the screen behind me if you can see it behind my big head. Starting in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin." So as sons and daughters of our first parents, Adam and Eve, from, from the book of Genesis, we enter the world, we collectively enter the world at birth as ones that are spiritually dead. And let me be clear, we have no inclination, zero or responsive towards God and no ability to please God. 
So Paul starts out this set of verses by addressing the spiritual state of his readers. So he's reminding the Ephesians, he's reminding the churches at Ephesus, this is where you found yourself. This is the place where you started. And he's also reminding us tonight. And the key word here being that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. There was no hope. So Paul is taking the opportunity to really pound this home, to say, don't forget where you came from. You were dead. Now you might say, I'm not dead. I got in my car tonight. I drove here. I even woke up this morning and put pants on. Thankfully, in Portland, you never know. So thankfully, you all did put pants on. I can see that tonight. But you can still be spiritually dead. You can still be a spiritual walking zombie. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so trespasses, what's really doing, he's drawing our attention to the acts of sin. That, that, that's kind of the acts of, of what trespasses in. And sin is more of a comprehensive account of human evil. We were dead and we committed transgressions. In other words, we found ourselves born into a sinful state. Think of it this way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Every single one of us. Every parent, I know not all of you are parents in here, but those of you who are parents, and I know I'm the one that has young kids in here, so this is a very easy example for me. You, of course, see this in your children. No one taught my kids how to be mean to each other. I never sent them to sin camp and said, go learn how to be mean to your brother, or go learn how to fight, or go learn how to hit one another. My kids learned selfishness and rebellion on their own. It wasn't their environment that showed them that. They just came out that way. You know, it's like, did I do something wrong here? Like, yes, we all did something wrong here. And so they're all born in this endless cycle. Whenever Oliver, my youngest, doesn't want to eat something, what does he do? He takes his plate and he'll either throw it on the floor or he'll take the, the, the peas or the carrots, whatever he doesn't want, he'll throw that on the floor. He says he thinks he can get away with it. We don't see him. He didn't learn that from me. It's debatable whether he learned it from his mom. Just kidding, he didn't learn from his mom either. Andrea and I don't do that. If we don't like something, we may kind of pass it along to the side or, or we'll just eat a little bit. But I don't just throw it on the floor. We don't even have a dog, so we don't have a dog to clean it up. So Oliver, just, he just throws it on the floor. His selfishness was inherent in his nature. We all came out that way. Paul says, we are spiritually dead. An illustration, if you're familiar with the story in Luke 15, we find the younger brother who they call the prodigal son. He's rebelling against his father. He's living recklessly in sin. And eventually he's eating with the pigs. Right? He, he said, I'm done with this. He took all of his inheritance and he finds himself eating in the slop of the pigs. If you've ever seen a pig, that's really, really gross. That's nasty. But when the son comes to himself and he comes home to his gracious father, his father's waiting for him. And his father says, my son was dead, but now he is alive, which is what we're going to see happen here tonight. This is the complete opposite of what the world tells us about ourselves as humans. What does the world tell us? What, is, what does Portland tell us? The world tells us that we're basically good. And if you just believe in yourself, then we can do anything. We hear that time and time again. You probably hear that at school if you're a student. You probably hear that at work, if you, uh, if wherever your, your job is. You probably hear it from your friends. Just believe in yourself and you can do it. It's all over our culture. And while it is possible for a spiritually dead person to do some really good things, really some amazing things, what I would say is that's because they're still an image bearer of God. So you might say, well, that person doesn't follow Jesus, and they have some of the best art, and they make some of the most money. And man, in our city, they even do some of the best humanitarian work. 
Right? We're not, we're not going to out-volunteer the city of Portland. There's so many non-profits, and so many of those are not connected to faith. And what I would say is that we take a step back and say it's because they're still image bearers in the image of God. But they, that means, doesn't mean that they are connected to the vine. And if they're not connected to the vine, that means they're still spiritually dead. They can volunteer their life away, but at the end of their life, if they don't know God, then there's going to be an eternal separation there that takes place. Most of you have probably never heard the name of Jeremy Bentham. He was a philosopher, among other things, who was considered the founder of utilitarianism, which is considered the greatest happiness principle. He was a very wealthy philosopher, and in his will, he left a fortune to the London Hospital, which, by the way, when I tell you the rest of the story, make sure that if someone dies and leaves a fortune to sojourn, that we at least consider, like, do we really want to go forward doing the instructions that were left here? So he left this money under one condition. He was to be present at every board meeting. So reportedly, for over 100 years, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were wheeled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. His skeleton was dressed in 17th century uh, garb, a little hat, and he was given a wax head. By the way, he was given a wax head because his actual skull, they were trying to maintain it, and it just got too mutilated and actually looked like the zombies you see in The Walking Dead. And so I think they gold-plated that and had it kind of in a case somewhere. So they had to give him a wax head. So if you've ever been to a wax museum, they look, they look pretty, pretty uh, freaky. And so in the minutes of the, every board meeting, there's a little line which read, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. So this was a joke of his philosophy. Of course, he never actually voted because he had been dead since 1832. In the same way, this verse is telling us that we were spiritually dead before God made us alive with Christ. We were present but not voting until God gave us life. So yes, you may be living life and you say, hey, things seem to be going well. And then about all the people in our city, the two and a half million in the Portland metro, how many of them are still in this state of spiritually, spiritually being dead? Yes, they're walking around, they're living life, they're breathing, because that's grace of God on their life. At this point, you may be thinking, well, this sermon is starting off awesome. Well, just hold on, because it's going to get worse. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, he's referring to Satan. And Satan is the one who's dominating his human subjects, which includes us. You and I were followers of Satan. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever considered yourselves a follower of Satan? Probably not. Think about, if you are in Christ, think about your life before you followed Christ. Did you consider yourself a follower of Satan? Probably not. But when you and I joined Satan in our rebellion, we became his sons and his daughters, and his spirit began to shape and lead us. This is in contrast to the sons of light that we read about in Luke 16, 8. The sons of Satan belong to a family who rebels against the holy and true God. This is the state that every single one of us found ourselves. We see three influencers in one's life prior to coming to Christ. The first one is the world around us. The second is the prince of the power of the air, Satan. The third is our own flesh as we are born with this sinful desire. Being sons and daughters of Adam means that we are born into a fallen state. In other words, you could not change this fact, unfortunately. You were, you were, every single one of us was born into this state. It's a fact that we cannot change, and it puts us in subjection to God's condemnation as children of wrath. Hopefully you're starting to get a grasp here of how bad we found ourselves in the state that we found ourselves in. Psalm 51.5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we were all conceived in sin. Paul described it this way 
later in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. That sounds like the state we found ourselves in right now. So this is towards, towards the latter times. Maybe we found ourselves in those times now because that sounds like the place that I live. I don't know about you guys. In theological terms, Paul's describing what we call total depravity, which means that all aspects of our being has been infected with deadly disease, and that disease is called sin which we've talked about this before, but there's only one cure to that, which we're going to unpack here in a few minutes. And what we'll see in verse 10 is that this hopelessness, this disease that we found ourselves with has one cure, and that cure is a new birth. I've mentioned this before. A lot of people come to the city of Portland. A lot of young people come to the city of Portland to recreate themselves. There's something appealing about Portland. You know, I can be what I want to be there, right? Just believe in yourself and try really hard. Portland's a perfect place for that. I meet people all the time, and that's why they moved here. But what I believe they're actually seeking is to be recreated, what Jesus Jesus calls to be re to be born again. I've heard it said this way: God did not send Jesus to improve us, our state of death, but rather to replace us all together with Himself. I think sometimes, if you've been in church for any amount of time, we kind of found ourselves going, "Yeah, Jesus is like a really good mentor. Jesus is like a really good coach." And so I believe He came to improve like who I already am. Jesus is making me a better version of myself. Like, no, that is not what the gospel teaches us. That is not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches that God sent Jesus to replace us all together. That's why there has to be this sense of death. We've already found ourselves in death, and that's why when you think about baptism, which I'm hoping we'll have baptisms here soon, that's such a beautiful picture because as we go down to the water, it's representing our dying to ourselves and being raised to new life. There has to be a death that actually takes place, and we have to be replaced all together by Jesus Christ himself. We allowed other things rather than God to become our master. We were supposed to carry out the will of God. Instead, we obeyed the impulses of the body and mind. And we still find ourselves falling into this even, even once we are in Christ. Our bodies say, have sex, or eat, or drink, or take it easy, or get angry. And we do it. We listen to our bodies. Right? It all depends on how did you wake up today, or how did your day go. That You know, you know what, I'm not even going to think about these things. I'm not even thinking about Christ or how to appeal to Christ. I'm just, my body says to do this, so I'm going to do it. And our culture says, yes, do it. We celebrate those things. Our mind says, make your own decisions, or do things your way. And we obey our mind. Before I proceed to the next verse, I want us to let this sink in for a minute. You and I deserve the wrath of God. We were dead in our sins. Our blasphemy against God deserves the internal punishment of hell where we are forever separated from God. I believe Paul starts here for a reason, and this is why we're going to start here tonight. Because in order to understand the gospel, in order to understand this good news that we talk about, and to understand its value, you have to come to an understanding of what you were saved from. You know, this is, you know, people talk about going to our city and say, you know, God loves you and you need to be saved. And it's like, people are going, what are you talking about? And sometimes the reason I think we're so crazy, it's not the message. They're, they're going, what am I being saved from? I don't understand what I'm being saved from. So they have to get to a place where they realize, man, I am spiritually dead. I have no hope. So we need to realize what we're being saved from, which is Paul is showing us here. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all prefer to jump to the good news of the gospel without wrestling with the bad news first. We just want to get to the good part of Jesus. 
Do we not? We just, man, let's, let's get to the Jesus stuff. That's why we have churches who don't even preach the bad stuff. They don't even mention the word sin. Churches who won't even mention the word hell. It's like, wait a minute, we find these words in the Bible. So just like we mentioned the words election and chosen and adoption, we should probably also mention these words if they're found in the Bible. But we got churches who, no, we just want to jump into Jesus and we want to be all flowery and you can live your best life now. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Well, Jesus is great. But there's part of understanding the gospel. First, we have to see how bad that we were. Why do we need Jesus? We do the same thing anytime we receive bad news or if we're dealing with an issue. We just want to know how to fix it. Especially, at least I'll speak for myself. I don't know about all men, but I feel like most men, like we just want to know how to fix the problem. How can I fix it and move on to the good news? Okay? This happens every time my wife points out something wrong in myself. It's always never a comfortable situation. These husbands, you maybe find it, your wife kind of brings up something or shares something, you're like, okay, how can we fix it? Like I just want to know how we move, how do we get to date night tonight? Okay, How how do we get to the fun part? I never want to spend time going like, all right, do I have to apologize for this? Or, I mean, what is it, what is it we need to do here? I just, I just want to get to the good part, the good news. But if we don't spend time wrestling with the extent of the problem of sin, we're never going to love the gospel or be committed to its spread. We have to understand, what is it we've been saved from, and what is it that we're going to share others so that they can be saved from? And think about this. Believing with the gospel is actually inconvenient. Here's what I mean by that. If you believe in the gospel, if you believe in the good news of Jesus... It puts all kinds of demands on you. It asks you to do things that are probably com- uncomfortable for most of us with our money. It asks us to be generous with our money. It asks you to have relationships with people that can be awkward and uncomfortable. Especially you introverts in the room. You think, oh man, I've got to go talk to people. Like, yes, you're actually called to have relationships with other people and to open your mouth. And part of that, if you're a follower of Christ, is to open your mouth and share about Jesus but until you and I understand the problem, we will not cherish the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, The reason we think too lightly of the Savior is we think too lightly of our sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment about his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he has been forgiven him. So Paul has described our state in three ways. So far, Paul said, one, we were dead. Every single one of us. Two, he says, we were disobedient. So we chose our death. We willingly jumped to our death. And third, he says, we were doomed. So we're dead, we were disobedient, and now we're doomed. There's, there's no hope. So if it stopped at verse 3, we are done. So Paul draws our attention to the depth of our depravity in order to magnify the mercy and grace of God in saving us. It's like a black backdrop to a diamond. And he does so with two of the sweetest words in the Bible. So hang with me. We've seen how bad we were. Hopefully you kind of wallowed in that. Maybe even you're feeling down a little bit. But then we're going to see these two really sweet words in verse 4. But God. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So you hear those words, but God. You know, it's like, it's like any situation you find yourself in. You're hearing this bad news. You're like, oh man, is there, is there any hope? Is there anything I can do? You know, but... You know, oh, your, your, your car is going to cost us much money, but we had a random person come and say they want to pay for it. You're like, what? Whoa, this is crazy. But God, these are two of the most life-giving words that we read in all of Scripture. What this means is that while we were lifeless, we were hopeless, and under God's condemnation, God said, you know what? I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you. 
Notice how Paul describes the character of God and the work of God in verse 4. And so we see the dire predicament we all found ourselves in suddenly change. So we found ourselves in this state of hopelessness, and all of a sudden we see but God, and it breaks in, and all of a sudden it, it completely shifts. It completely changes the whole dynamic because of God's rich mercy. The Old Testament describes God as abounding in mercy and that he delights in mercy. And then we just see that in, in the New Testament, God's mercy is also free. In Romans 9, it says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So because of God's great love, unconditional love is the heart of the gospel that becomes the most dear to us when God's grace and we see our own weakness so clearly that we know there's absolutely nothing in us to warrant this love from God. That is what the grace means, and that none of us deserve it. There wasn't like we did something more you know, special over others. This is something I've always wrestled with, if I can be open with you. Most of you know that we spent a couple years in South Asia. I'm out in, in very unreached villages where people have no access to the gospel. People don't have a copy of Scripture in their language. And as I'm wrestling with this, I go, God, why was I born in the U.S. in a family that brought me to church from the time that I was a young child? Why, why, why is that? And it's nothing that I did. It wasn't like God looked down upon my family and said, man, they're doing a really good job. The boys are just killing it. So I'm going to make sure that their children are raised in this environment where it's a little bit easier to give their life to Christ. It's only by God's grace that you found yourself in the situation that you found yourself in. And if you're in here and I know there's some new faces, I don't know you, and you say, man, like I'm not I'm even sure about this message. Well, it's by God's grace that you're in this room tonight, and I'm praying that my words will be made clear that it will actually be God's words that you're hearing. Paul writes, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, dead, depraved, and doomed, Christ died for us. That's from Romans 5.8. I've heard it said this way, until the gospel seems too good to be true, you haven't really understood it. So have you found yourself thinking, man, the gospel is just too good to be true? If you haven't, then maybe you don't actually understand the gospel. Because when you really understand its implications, really understand the message, really understand the state that you found yourself in, man, this is just too good to be true. What prompted God's salvation was His mercy, His love, His grace, and His kindness. Right? It's all back on God. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Paul. as Part of these things he brings up, it's Paul stepping back and, and saying, we need to recognize the awe and wonder of God, the mystery of God, the majesty of God. It's all about God. That's what prompted our salvation was God's mercy, not yours. God's love, God's grace, God's kindness. Paul can, in the same sentence, affirm the wrath of God in those first few verses, because they're really one sentence, and the love of God. And in fact, you can't understand one without the other. That's why, that's, once again, we have churches and groups that only focus on God's love. Like, wait a minute, you're not telling the full story here. And I don't think you can really grasp it and understand it until you see the full spectrum of what's going on here. Paul starts out in verse 5 by returning to his original thought from verse 1 by saying this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we see that God, by His power, whose power? God's power, provides new life. God made us alive by giving us what we call regeneration. It's a new spiritual life within us. God did that together with Christ, the one that is uniting all things to Himself. Once again, we're calling the series Uniting Christ for that reason. That we see Jesus is uniting all things, both things in heaven and things on earth, back to Himself. And notice how also Paul says that we've been made alive together with Christ. He's pointing out our union with Christ. Once you're in Christ, you have this special union. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To capture what Paul is saying, you could put it like this. You have been saved 
past tense. You are being saved, present tense, and you will be saved, future tense. Continue with me in verse 6, where Paul says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What this means is that because of Christ's resurrection, those who believe in him are given a new life spiritually in this age, on this earth, we found ourselves tonight, which is what we call regeneration. But he also says we'll be given a renewed physical body when Christ returns, a future resurrection. To summarize this, what God did for Christ he did at the same time for believers, for those that are in Christ. What do I mean by that? In some ways, when Jesus Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, Matt Boyd also got up with him. And, and you can enter your name if you're in Christ. You can say, man, I also got up with Christ 2,000 years ago. Because this is what this, this passage, this is what this verse is telling me here. In Colossians 2.12 and 3.1, Paul says that this has already taken place since you have been raised with Christ. Tony Marita points out the great reversal that has taken place between verses 1 and 3 and verses 4 through 7. In the first section, we see that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. In the second section, we see that we're now alive together with Christ. In the first section, we see that we were sons of disobedience. In the second section, he says, you have been raised up with Christ. In this first section, it says, you are children of wrath, and now we've been seated with Christ. We are children of wrath. Now we're recipients of generous mercy. We were children of wrath. We are now recipients of great love. We were children of wrath. We're now recipients of rich grace. We are children of wrath. We are now recipients of God's kindness. And we are children of wrath, but now we have trophies of God's grace. Because when God saves you, it's, it's all about giving Him the glory. It's not saying, wow, look what I did and I cleaned my life up. I, when people say, I'm going to go clean my life up and then I'm going to come to Christ, say, you can't do that. You're, you're going you're to be working the rest of your life to try to do that, and then you're still going to fail. Just come to Jesus. Jesus, come as you are. Paul begins his great summary of the gospel in verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace refers to God's favor upon those who have transgressed His law and sinned against Him. The grace of God not only is what offers us salvation, it's not only what offers you salvation, but it's also what secures our salvation. What is it that we are being saved from? We are being delivered from the wrath of God at the final judgment that we all will face. And he says, through faith, this is the confident trust and reliance upon Christ. There has to be an element of faith. I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, and as I'm meeting people in our city, and God, by His grace, has given me opportunities to share life with them and, and share the good news with them, I always say there's an element of faith that I can't get away from. And this is what this tells us right here. This is through faith. And it means that by Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. And that I have faith that, that God will do His part. The gift of God means that salvation is impossible to be accomplished on your own. You had nothing to do with your salvation. Hopefully if you, you've heard that multiple times now. And hopefully if you didn't believe it before, you believe it now. You can never do enough to save yourself. Those around us can never do enough to save themselves. That's why as I see these people, as I see these, these spiritually walking dead, these walking zombies around us, so I want to be able to shake them and say, you can't do anything. You came to recreate yourself in the city. You're seeking it in so many other things. But there's nothing you can actually do. But I know the answer. I know what you're looking for. I've got it right here. We should never think of salvation as a transaction. God provides grace. We provide faith. But it's all grace. And so that is my prayer for our city. God, I pray that you would have grace upon the city of Portland. 
That's why every Tuesday morning I meet with Christians from other churches in our city and we pray that God will remove the spiritual blinders of the people around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, people we love. Say, God, please rain your grace down on our city. We saw a college student confess Christ in January and although she had to exercise faith in order for that, that to happen and take place, it was all grace that provided her with salvation. In other words, it wasn't of her own doing. It wasn't like she woke up that morning and said, you know what? I think I'm going to give my life to Christ today. It just seems like a good day. The sun is shining. I'm going to interact with someone. No, that's not what happened. God's grace broke through in that moment. She recognized her need as we saw in verses 1-3 through three, and she submitted herself to the Lordship of Jesus. Paul finally says, It, salvation, is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see that first, salvation is not by works. If it were, then those who were saved would be the ones receiving glory. If you somehow found yourself saved by things that you were doing, you should be the one receiving glory. Say, wow, let's put praise on this person. But that's not what happened. Second, and we must see, going back to the previous set of verses, that salvation is only by grace and is, is a completely a gift. And what is a gift? A gift is something that you're given, right? It's, it's something free. We gave my son birthday gifts yesterday. We didn't say, okay, now you got to go cut the grass and wash the car and clean the toilets, as much as I would have loved to have said that, because all those things need to be done. I said, no, these are gifts because we love you, and so we're, we're, we're giving these gifts to you. There's no strings attached to these gifts. Third, we must understand that salvation is through faith, and we must trust Him alone for our salvation. So if you've ever wondered, what were you created for? Then Paul is telling us right here, we are created for good works, but the salvation that we have is not based on works. But the good works that we are to do, that Christians are to do, are the direct result and consequence of God's new creation work. All right, so that was, that was talking about works a lot, so hopefully you understood that. It's not the works that you do that, that is what saves you or even that keeps you saved. Those good works that you do should be a natural overflow of the Spirit of God working in you. So now you're being changed, right? Where before, anything that would come out of you was, was ultimately, ultimately sin and ultimately evil. Now there's hopefully these good works coming out of you. And so why do, we, why do we volunteer for nonprofits our city? And why do we love Concordia University? And why do we love PC Cascade? And why do we have partnership with Vernon? It's, it's not so we're working to go, oh, look at our salvation. We're working our salvation. No, it's so as a natural overflow of the Spirit of God working in us. Say, we love our city. God's called us here. These are the people in the proximity where He's put us. There's relationships He wants for us there. And so as a natural overflow of the God, Spirit of God working in us, collectively we want to serve these communities and these people. F.F. Bruce said it this way, We are His work of art, His masterpiece. Think about it. We are God's work of art. I am not an artist, at least not in the sense where you can draw and paint. My wife is. She does some beautiful work. But imagine if this is a big canvas up here. And, and you know, the artist really can do whatever the artist wants to do. So if, if you're me, you're just splashing paint on the wall. And maybe it looks cool and someone will buy it. But we are God's you know, canvas. We're His work of art that He's, he's painting up there. Or, or think of a, a potter molding the clay. Right? God's working on us. And you can probably think about your own spiritual walk, your own spiritual journey, that God is molding us and shaping us into what He wants us to be. Martin Luther said this in his introduction to St. Paul's letter to the Romans. He said, Instead, faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God. It kills the old Adam and makes us completely different people. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts, and all our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Yes, it is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done this, 
them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. He stumbles around and looks for faith and good works, even though he does not know what faith or good works are. So let me wrap it up for us tonight by saying this. Ephesians 2 speaks of the walking dead among us. Those that are physically alive, but they're missing what we call real life. Many of us know this all too well. Because sometimes we still walk around according to the lethal ways of, of the world and we feel its dynamic power drawing us towards toxic behavior. Right? I don't know about you guys, when I moved to the city of Portland, maybe because where I moved from, I could feel the spiritual realm here. And I still can feel the spiritual realm. There is some darkness going on around us. But this is the context where God has called us. And part of what we're seeing, part of what we're sensing is the walking dead around us. There's a reason. Our city is considered one of the most lost cities in the country as far as who don't have relationships with Christ. So naturally, you're going to sense that. You're going to feel that. But we choose, oftentimes we will choose what is harmful in order, for our, in order to gratify our desires. So even as those in Christ, we'll find ourselves gravitating towards that because it's all around us. Remember last week we were talking about how those things are celebrated. You can go out here tonight and you can indulge in, in any kind of sin that you think of. And that will be celebrated by those around you. But Ephesians 2, it doesn't leave us with the depressing diagnosis of a living death. Rather, we are offered the good news of what God has done in Christ in hope of a different way of living. All right, so we got some really, really bad news tonight. The doctor came in, he gave us a diagnosis. He said, cancer's all over your body. There is no hope. And then, miraculously, something happened. They said, there's actually a cure, but God. But we found the cure to the disease that all of us have been affected by. And at the center of all of this, the good news of the truth is that we have been saved by grace. So here's the thing. Christianity is not about becoming righteous enough to eventually be accepted by God. Many of us still operate that way. I'm just trying to do these really good things because I want God to accept me. Or I'm trying to pay God back. Like, you can't pay God back. It's not possible. So don't, don't, don't approach it that way. But it's, it is about being accepted by the righteousness of God as your own. For what Jesus did, all of a sudden, God now looks at you as righteous. If you remember from the very first week of the series, Paul calls them saints. And the reason we're called saints is because of what Jesus has done, nothing that you have done. So the question is, have you ever received this offer of grace to be saved? Once again, I don't know everybody in the room. And so if you have not accepted the gift of salvation for yourself, all you have to do is have faith in the gift of God's grace for you. It is freely offered. For those of you that have already received the gift of salvation, those who would say are in Christ, may we remember this tonight and praise God by lifting up our voices in song, being generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure in the week ahead as an act of worship, as we thank God for the grace that He's given us and, and what He has called us to do by being conduits of His grace in our city around us. Pray with me. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.